Today's episode of Undesigned comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders past, present and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Undesign. I'm your host, Costa, and thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand we all have so much we can bring to these big problems, so listen in and see where you fit into the solution as we undesign the concepts of Indigenous worldviews and global sustainability. If you've been on social media or looked at any news recently, it can be easy to feel like we're on the verge of existential collapse. Our feeds seem to be this revolving door of headlines about the COVID pandemic, violent global conflicts, economic instability, and the looming environmental crisis, just to name a few. Now, if you're a social impact-oriented systems thinker, much like we are, you probably wonder, how did we get here? However, waiting in the wings of this discussion are those who have been trying to offer us a new way of looking at things that's actually not so new. In this season finale of Undesign, we explore what it means to look at the world as it is right now, and the solutions to the challenges we all face through the multitude of Indigenous worldviews. Helping us do this are our latest special guests, Professor Emerita Dasha Naves and Professor Don Four Arrows Jacobs, whose new book, Restoring the Kinship Worldview on Shelves in April 2022, forms the basis of our amazing conversation. Dasha is Professor Emerita of Psychology at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana in the United States. She is a fellow of the American Psychological Association, the American Educational Research Association, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. She studies moral development and human flourishing from an interdisciplinary perspective, integrating anthropology, neuroscience, clinical, developmental, and educational sciences. She has published hundreds of papers and over 20 books, including the multi-award-winning book, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom. She also serves as president of kindredworld.org, blogs for psychology today on topics like moral landscapes, and hosts the webpage evolvenest.org. Four Arrows is also an internationally respected scholar for his research and publications about Indigenous worldviews. Formerly Dean of Education at Oglala Lakota College and tenured Associate Professor of Education at Northern Arizona University, he is currently a professor with Fielding Graduate University. Selected as one of 27 visionaries in education, he's the author of 21 books, half of which are about Indigenous worldview applications for education, sustainability, wellness, and justice. Dasha and Four Arrows talked me through the years of work and research that led to the development of this book, and then make the case for how original Indigenous understandings of the world, ones that guided us for 99% of human history, offer a potentially pivotal way to restore balance to life on Earth. This is a truly big picture discussion with a lot to sink your teeth into, and it's at once challenging and extremely hopeful. Dasha, four hours, welcome. How are you both this morning or this afternoon? We different times all over the world here, huh? Yeah, doing well? Doing well in the evening. Yes. I would love to know quickly, just before we start, where are you coming to us from? So... Like, and, and, you know, the traditional place names are where you're from. So I'm coming to you from um, Ulu, or, uh, which is on Wajak Buja, which is Perth, Western Australia, essentially. Um, 
traditional lands of the Noongar people over here. How about yourselves? I'd love to know uh, yeah, more about that from where each of you are. Well, I am in Jalisco, Mexico, uh, the, the Noat people, and the um, the uh, sad uh, story uh, that we know so often that they only two of them still, still are speaking the language here, and most of them are uh, are, are in trucks every morning uh, with little kids picking the chilies, uh, and so. Um, but that's uh, they they took care of this beautiful beautiful land on the ocean here for uh, a long long a long time. Mm, thank you, Juarez and Dasha. Where are you calling from? I'm in Indiana, United States, northern Indiana, and it's the traditional homeland of the Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi. Um, and there are many other actually tribes that were here as well, but they're the ones who uh, lasted the longest in part because they uh, converted to Catholicism and right. were protected. Gosh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing both of that with us. And it's just a, such a um, privilege to be able to have this conversation with you today. So broadly, we're speaking off um, uh, the amazing book that you both have put together. Congratulations, Restoring the Kinship Worldview. Um, and, and we'll unpack that as the conversation goes. But um, I guess just before we start, could either of you tell us a bit about how this book came together? Well, I can say that Four Arrows asked me to join him in this book after he had the idea. I see, I see. <laughs> well, I... Uh, Four Arrows, are you? It, it, the, I'll try, I don't, we were just talking earlier. Does it start with my near-death experience on the Rio Urique in Copper Canyon? Uh, or did it start with me going back uh, and getting my second doctorate? Um, so I'll, I'll be real brief, but uh, after the Marine Corps, I was an officer in the Marine Corps, I had a chip on my shoulder about the Vietnam War, and I took my uh, my uh, suffering out on uh, adventure sports. And I be the first to ascend the Rio Urique, which is 8,000 feet down in the deepest canyon in uh, North America, the Copper Canyon. And uh, we had inflatable boats back in those days. This was, uh, you know, when they, they didn't have the, the, the strong ones. So they would call them rubber duckies. They had lots of patches. Mm. And we hired a, a Ralmari uh, uh, Indian to bring us down uh, through the jungles and, and into the, to the water. And, I, and long story short, uh, there's a video you can watch if you put in the shaman's mes message on YouTube. Mm. All the was narrated. Uh, the entire river disappeared into an underground drainage and took me with it. Uh, the Ralamaris uh, wound up saving my life, uh, showed us out, and it, uh, I had a transformation uh, in many ways. Uh, but I also had a vision, and the vision was about really worldview, and it's called the cat and the fawn, which has got its own story because of the mountain lion that was in a cave with us and a fawn that the Marie's ran down. They're just as great runners until the feet were bleeding and he hmm. home for food. Um, but the, the transformation was so profound, I quit my work as a health psychologist and went back to get a degree in curriculum uh, and patient on what it was that this vision meant to me over a long period of years. Um, and then right out of the door from uh, the university, 
uh, I was made the dean of education at Oglala Lakota College on the Pine Ridge Reservation and thrown mm. with a group of traditionalists uh, and some dancers. So I, you know, so really the, each one of those is a part of, of how this worldview that, that we were guided by for 99% of human history seemed the, the solution. Darcy and I were just talking while you were doing the recording about a half yeah. ago. I, I was working on this granite ping pong table we're put, we got on here on, on the property. And uh, I walked inside and my wife was watching PBS and they had a presidential news conference. And right. the, the redheaded lady who's the press secretary was answering questions. And when I walked in, a man said, so what is President Biden going to do about this mass shooting and all the shootings that are happening, this loss of you? Mm went on to talk about the politics of gun control and all this stuff, but he interrupted her and he said, no, no, what can we do to get humanity start to start treating humanity right? And of course, didn't have an answer, but I'm thinking, wow, if they could just listen to this interview. Wow. Those are my thoughts. So. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Thank you for sharing um, that personal story, I guess, for arrows. And I guess it's it's the perfect sort of segue into my first question, which is really, what do we mean by worldview? Because like, I feel like that's a, a a term that we hear a lot that I think means something slightly different to many people. So I'd love to know from your points of view, what does worldview mean to you? And I guess, how would you say the Indigenous worldview, however defined, and I'd love for you to sort of draw some parameters around that for the sake of our conversation, how is that different to what we would call like a dominant worldview? The worldview, I'll start. The worldview is uh, the way you conceive of the world's working, and it's sort of a cosmology of how you think about what humans are, what humans should be, what the stars are about, or what the earth is about, and how you relate to all these things, right? And the, it's part of our cultural background that actually then fuels our philosophy, our habits, our attitudes, our beliefs. So it's this uh, very subtle, in a way, um, subconscious aspect of who we are that we take for granted. Just a bunch of basic assumptions about things that, so my work is from the scientific perspective, the uh, developmental science is how the early experiences we have shape that worldview. They set us on a trajectory for particular kinds of worldviews. So. Four arrows probably wants to say more before I say more about that. Sure. Thank you. Well, you know, when we when we look at the concept of worldview, it, it has a, a long history of stopping conversations like this. Um, worldview essentially was a battle between religions, uh, especially um, the Christian religion and science. And science sort of kind of won out. But if you put the word, uh, if you go to Amazon and look at books and put in worldview, there'll be th thousands of books. And I'd say 90, I haven't counted them, but I'd say 95 or to 99% are really religions trying to, 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 to say that their religion and, and the various religions are worldviews. Um, but they tended to, to stop dialogue. Um, when we look at the concept, it was mentioned once by, by uh, Immanuel Kant, and, but it took off 
everybody said, well, isn't this the fundamental thing? I mean, all the great philosophers started to say, yes, the basic foundation is, is our worldview. But it wasn't until uh, uh, Robert Redfield really put it on the map in the academy from the University of Chicago. Uh, and, and he said, essentially, at the time in the 1930s, there's only three worldviews. Whereas, like you say, there's so many different ideas. People see religions as worldview, uh, fields of science as worldview, I mean, cultures as worldview. But he said, no, no, worldview is really the relationship between nature and humans, humans and humans, and humans and supernature, or the, the, the spiritual realm. And when we that, you can take almost all cultures and philosophies and ideologies, and you can see that they they fit under the umbrella of what we can call the dominant worldview. So for our, even if in our heart we see it differently, we are operating educationally, economically, socially uh, in an anthropocentric way. Whereas if we look at all the great diversity of unique indigenous cultures with unique place-based knowledge and languages, they have in common also something that is definitely not anthropocentric. It's animistic. It's well, we, we, we have looked at the literature and have come up with 40 precepts. The dominant worldview uh, precepts uh, that are typically operating, whether, you know, somebody believes in one or not, and 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 then the indigenous ones, but we look at this as uh, as a it's obviously a binary, but but the the indigenous worldview is considered by scholars to be a non-binary worldview, and and so if you look at it with the dominant worldview, you look at it as either you're with us or against us, right? But in in the in the non-duality. Uh, and the complementary duality worldview of indigenous people, we look at this as a conversation opener and as the, from the, the, the dominant side to the indigenous side as a continuum and maybe even as a circle. Where are we now? What if we move from a low regard for women to a high regard for women? What if we move a materialistic to a spiritual? What would, you know, what would, and that opens the dialogue. and and. Research, of course, is uh, is becoming overwhelming uh, in contrast to the anti-Indian um, anthropology that that we've had for the last couple of hundred years. Yeah, sure. And I guess I mean that's a um, you just got me thinking. I guess because you know when we talk about uh, dominant worldview and indigenous worldview, I kind of actually hear indigenous worldviews. Like you know, if we're talking about multitudes and sort of um, complementarity rather than sort of power over and us versus them. Um, it sounds like it's trying to depart from something we've become familiar with for, for at least, you know, since recent history. So I guess, is it your view then that this sort of dominant worldview is kind of like an enlightenment era type of paradigm, or is it something that predates that? Do you think? It has uh, seeds in earlier uh, in civilization, in Sumer and uh, right, okay, other, so going that far back, Roman, Greek, yes. yeah, they already were starting to detach from the body and detach from the natural world and enhance human reason as the primary aspect of being a human. 
but it really did take off uh, <laughs> in a super way uh, with the Enlightenment, so-called Enlightenment. It's more yes, of a deal. Yes, so-called. Yeah, very Eurocentric. <laughs> In the in the Western world, and then it just with colonization uh, at the same time these things were happening: industrialization, colonization, capitalism. All that just uh, fueled the fire of this uh, dominant worldview, and then was forced on the world essentially. Mm. And I guess then I'd love to hear more about like why we feel it's important to shift from uh, a so-called dominant worldview. What is it that what is it that you see right now or, you know, in your experience that makes this like a, a pretty urgent or a pretty, um, I guess, just a higher endeavor collectively that we should embark on? Well, look around. Mm. I mean, we're at the edge of a sixth mass extinction. Wars are probably... Mm. Uh, and, and, and have been uh, continual uh, inequality, um, injustice, uh, uh, and lack of happiness. I mean, you know, I don't question that these are the problematics. We you know the the the, uh, the the press secretary being asked about why are people shooting each other and not having an answer. Um, you know, if. If you if we could show the audience, you know, the the uh, the, the different precepts and asked once to, 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 to and I've done this a hundred times with students and with within presentations. Tell me if we were operating as we did for most of human history. On the continuum that is mostly on the right side of this chart, could you would we be in? Uh, a situation where we're polluting our air and our water. Would we have hierarchies that are that are so severe, et cetera, et cetera? And people say no. And 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 the research, like I, I said earlier, the largest study ever done was the United Nations Biodiversity Report. Uh, it was fifty countries, um, four hundred and fifty interdisciplinary scientists, fifteen thousand peer-reviewed papers. And uh, if your audience puts in um, what the media missed at the nation in the publication called The Nation in the United States, the oldest journal, um, uh, my, my article shows and quotes from this report saying that in, you know, right now, 80 percent of all biodiversity on, on this planet is on only 20 percent of the landmass and not coincidentally that 20 percent that it's maintained by the 5 percent of people who have still held on against all odds to their worldview, and they use that word, um, and still have enough control of the land for that worldview to, to, to play a role. And, uh, and so they said, where indigenous worldview is operating this, this horrible extinction rate that they, that they wrote about was either not significantly reduced. Now, you had mentioned the Enlightenment earlier, David Graeber's book, The New Dawn of Everything, he's no longer with us, where he's gone, but they show how the European Enlightenment was really no more than bright individuals hearing rumors about first indigenous people and how they treated women and about how they were generous and how they, even Columbus in 1492 said, I've never met such generous people, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, really we're moving into a place and Darsha's work with, with uh, uh, early childhood 
you know, if we could, if we could, if we could, well, Josh, I'm going to let you take it from here. Yeah, I, well, I see that uh, the way we treat children in our industrialized, capitalized, uh, colonized world uh, is undermining our human nature, essentially. We, and we, we established all these practices before we, in, in the Western dominant culture anyway, before it was understood uh, how the brain develops and how it's toxically stressed in early life if uh, the basic needs aren't met. And so in my lab, we study what I call the evolved nest. And that's our species developmental system for raising the young that optimizes normal development. We know all this, mm. right? <laughs> so again, Western dominant culture that's gone off the rail, I think it's, it's very dissociated. It's very odd and strange culture because we don't feel like we're connected, right, to the earth another to the spiritual world it's you know we're this little pods and that happens early life because you leave babies to cry you make them sleep alone and then people don't want to touch their ch children but touch is building all sorts of systems properly if, if you're affectionate touching and play kids need free play and they need multiple adult caregivers to make sure the baby's always kept in optimal arousal condition for brain development that's happening so quickly right and uh Nature immersion and connection, so important for understanding yourself as a member of the Earth community. So all the practices we know now with the neuroscience and other, other uh, sciences, how important they are for health, for happiness, for intelligences. And we have undermined all of it from our shift towards money-making, essentially, and getting ahead <laughs> because we've established this very unequal hierarchical society, which I call competitive detached uh, cycle, essentially. Right. The undermining right. of care that leads to kind of ill health and ill being and dysregulation. Adults who aren't very smart, really, intelligence is wise, uh, and they're not very well. And then they create this cycle. They continue the cycle of not meeting basic needs, and they think it's normal. Mm. <laughs> mm. Our tradition, though, the indigenous, and I've discovered all this when I was writing the book, uh, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom. I, the book had a mind of its own. It wasn't the book I had proposed, but it led me to the indigenous worldview and the indigenous way of being for getting back to our human nature, our neurobiology that's cooperative, that wants to be with others, that loves to be with others, that enhances their well-being, that feels connected to the earth. That's who we are as human beings. And we've forgotten. Our baselines have shifted. We've just, you know, gotten used to less than optimal. Uh, we don't know how to thrive. We don't even know what it looks like. So we've uh, adopted instead of a trauma-inducing pathway, instead of the wellness-promoting pathway of our ancestors. Mm. It's really challenging. Like, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, and I guess it's a lot to sort of take in and the word that keeps coming to mind as you're speaking or both of you actually is just this idea of alienation and in that very marxist way at least that's my point of reference at the moment because i'm teaching a little bit about marx but um this idea of alienation and being sort of dissociated or not not connected the whole way through for the thing like for the people we have relationships with the things that we do in our day-to-day -day, um you know the way we exploit materials for for um, for market and capital and things like that. Um, 
And I guess how, like, is it as simple to just say that colonization as we know it has brought us to this divergent, like this divergence from um, Indigenous worldview? Or do you think there's something more complex there at play? Um, I'm just curious to know, like, I understand that, you know, the impacts of colonization are still things that we're understanding to this day. Um, but I I'm, I'm, I'm guess I'm still, I keep coming back to this sort of question of how did we get here if that's the if if that makes sense i guess in a more existential sense like how did we get here like if something seemed to be working for so long for for history how did we diverge into this dominant view which has kind of started to peel us away from some of these core basic uh, human tendencies yes so you're asking what what is the uh the the key turning point uh, talk about in the book Point of Departure. I, I have the same. Yeah, yeah, that's far more eloquent. Yes, and uh, <laughs> and so how did we move from a a worldview that was relational? Uh, it was about reciprocity mm. and responsibility, to one Russia just said was about power and 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 money. Um, well, well, no one knows. We know that it probably happened because Sumeria was the first civilization that we know of that practiced it. They were still had a foot rules, but they practiced it and then the Romans perfected it. Um, then it never stopped, right? And so, you know, indigenous stories say that in all human beings is this potential for greed and for selfishness. Uh, all mm. the stories, the aboriginal stories of Australia, uh, all the way up to Lakota, etc., they have had these teaching stories about this potential in us um and and so you know the 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 survival motif showed that those things did not work and worked was the kinship worldview the title of our book um yes yeah. and and so um you know whether it was a couple of let's, let's say you and i were a couple of aboriginals uh, you know eight thousand years ago and we happened to be route and we happened to have land where we were living that was in a place where there were springs and we had all this food and for the first first time we had agricultural surplus we've always had agriculture but we had this mm. surplus and for some reason we said you know what this idea of generosity and sharing and following the laws of nature i've had it with that boy look what we can right i don't know and 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 Bought on because those things are enticing and they have been enticing. Mm. But if we look at worldviews as a way to not only explain our world, but to give us direction in our goals and actions, and if we look at this as, uh, as, a, as a process that should give survival advantages to people holding them, well, we're not doing that because people don't choose view as a from a survival mechanism they do well what does mom and dad believe they do what is this mm. what is the charismatic person hypnotizing me to believe um you know if, if we were doing it like the united nations study did that was a what's the survival advantage and the thrival advantage of a kinship-based worldview that, that emphasizes responsibility over rights again going back to our 40 mm. um you know, and so you know we're we're off track. We've de-evolved, if you will, um, mm. and uh, you know there you are. Yeah, 
Well, that's a great. Uh, oh, sorry, Dasha, you go. Far Arrows mentioned the book, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and uh, David Wengro. Uh, and one of the great things that they point out is, well, um, the, I think that they're part of the group of anthropologists that um, admire nomadic foragers mm. who still exist around the world. That's our 99% of our history was spent in that kind of society. And in those societies, uh, they don't allow egos to get big, inflated. They, they have uh, what's called uh, leveling, rough teasing. Uh, if a hunter gets a big animal, you know, they all start, all the other guys will say, oh, it's so small. We should right. go back and find a rabbit. It would be bigger, you know, and they do this until he starts to laugh too, you know, right. when they're out. Why do you do that? They say, well, if we don't, he'll become dangerous to the rest of us. Right, because they know egos are, if they get too big, are going to be dangerous. Because you and we know from psychological studies that the rich people tend to think that they're entitled. They run stop signs. They, you know, bump into you and don't apologize. Whatever, uh, and because they think they're better than you, and so our ancestors actually knew how smart it was to mm. keep the ego from getting bigger, and they wow. had all sorts of stories about that too. Uh, and we've done the opposite right so we allowed people to accumulate and then they got the big ego and then they tried to make the structures keep uh stay so mm. they can keep their power mm. and that's happened over the last uh, millennia so we have had a um uh scientific revolution we've had an industrial revolution we're in the throes of an information theory revolution uh, Elon Musk, uh, you know, talks about that all the time now, and and in, in all three, we have forgotten the really only observable phenomenon for for balance. So we can do the science and 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 technology, and we can do uh, uh, industrial corporate stuff, and we can do information. But we make the choice of what, of which of those technologies need work before they are in balance with what? What is what? What is the only thing that knows how to balance our world? It's it's human brains. It's not any of those revolutions. It's not any of the religions. It's close and intimate and survival-oriented and thrival-oriented observation of nature. nature. So how can we abandon a nature-based worldview where we see the sentience and the, and the wisdom in trees, etc.? cetera? How, how we have abandoned that as teenagers. Oh, wow, we've got this new toy, whether it be religion or industry or whatever. We can be powerful with it. It's a matter of how we've lost our balance. And so talking about we can find that balance again, and it's not that difficult to do. There's at least 40 ways again to, to live, and, and, and we can embrace any religious faith and then know what part of it doesn't work. Like the, you know, Pope Francis just said that dogs go to heaven. Well, he didn't know in, in the Bible. It's, it just says in bad things about the, what the dog is, right? And so we've, mm. we've got to, <laughs> to, to just wake up 
to a worldview that truly is nature-based. And even for folks, folks that are living in cities with concrete, it can still be done. There's still nature around for us to begin to mm. learn from. And, yeah. and then we'll talk later, maybe if we have time, about the phenomenon that has got us in trouble and, 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 and that we used to know how to control. Mm. That's the phenomenon of hypnosis. You can't explain oh. why human beings are poisoning their own water and air that are intelligent without understanding the phenomenon of hypnosis as indigenous people, as we did for 99% of human history through our ceremonies. Wow, I'm really intrigued now. And this is probably a great sort of point to jump into the actual book itself, right? Because, um, you know, I've said to Dasha pre previously um, that I was really struck by the structure of it. So I'd love to dive into the way you've structured the book where you've got these precepts. I think you selected 23 for the for the was it was it all 40 no 28 28 of the 40 oh it's 28 i beg your pardon so it was 28 precepts that you selected and essentially you know for those of us that aren't aware precepts are essentially what like a not a commandment but like a, a principle of um to live by or to 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 make decisions it's like a compass you know like around certain aspects of life so you've got these 28 precepts and then what follows in each chapter is essentially a conversation between yourself and Dasha, like unpacking each of those um, uh, precepts, which for me was just a really strikingly different structure for a, for a book of this nature. So I'd love to hear more. Feel free to dive into an example that you think might be um, a good illustration of some of the things people can expect if they were to to look at the book. But could you talk to me more about some, how how you've structured the book and how you how this can be then, this can lead us to more collective action towards this uh, kinship worldview? Well, we uh, we could read a little bit. Sure, please. Yeah, go for it. So the first chapter is, the, the precept is recognition of spiritual energies in nature. Mm. And we quote Morning Dove, who's Okanagan and Cynics. Um lived uh, in the turn of the century, the 19th century. So she says some things like this. Indians had a staunch belief that the creator made the world according to a divine plan that gave power from the animal world to our ancestors and now to us. Children at the early age of six or seven were continually sent out each night to hunt for a guardian spirit. Both boys and girls were obliged to undertake this search. As children grew older, they were sent a little farther away each night until they graduated from short to long distances when the teacher or parents gave them something special to take along on these night journeys. The hope was that the child would receive a vision of the animal spirit associated with the entrusted skin or bone. The child was always instructed never to run away from any animal form or apparition that chose to speak to him or her while on these expeditions hunting for knowledge. A child might find these supernatural powers almost any place. Water, cliffs, forest, mountains, remains of lightning-struck trees, animal carcasses, old campfires, or a sacred sweat lodge. The spirits were supposed to appear when they were impressed by the dedication and purity of the persistent seeker. The spirit's appearance came to a child in a vision in the form of an animal or an object that spoke about how the spirit would help with future life 
especially when needed during times of distress. It sang its spiritual song for the child to memorize and use when calling upon the spirit guardian as an adult. So go compare that to, I'm not going to let my child go into the woods. It's dangerous. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> yeah, right. I was going to say, how does that, how do you see this sort of against a modern context, a modern industrialized context? And what, I guess, are you proposing there's a way to restore some of that? Or, yeah, I guess, what's the, what's the journey from the precept to where we are now, as far as you're concerned? That's what we talk about in our dialogues about each precept, right? Mm. So in our ancestral context, and um, until recently, until recent uh, decades, maybe centuries, uh, we children grew up in a multi-generational uh, community. Mm. They didn't go off to a classroom with and sit with people their, their own age. That's crazy. That's how you build competition. That's how you build risk-taking, right? And you don't, you know... It, you don't build cooperation that way, which does come automatically from natural pedagogy, which is the elders, the older kids helping the younger. They love to do that. And the younger looking up and wanting to learn. And so it's much more interactive and uniquely tailored to the child, the education receive. And now we treat them, everyone sort of like a machine, you know, <laughs> going through a factory. Uh, and devoting. Spirit, devoid of the spirit is the, yeah. is the key you know, to this chapter. Mm. And, you know, I've done, Darshan has too, but I've done hundreds of times around the world uh, with uh, d juvenile delinquents all the way to uh, Buddhist monks. Uh, when they s start to sit down for the conference presentation, I'll say, before you sit down, set your stuff down, it'll be safe. Go out the corridor, make a left and open the door and you'll see a bunch of uh, bushes and trees out there in the courtyard. I just want you to touch one and come back. And they'll come back. Uh, and uh, then I'll say, well, I'm going to ask you, to, you're going to laugh, but I want you to go back again one more time. But this time, before you touch the tree, I want you to ask permission and wait for an answer. And of course, people guffaw and start thinking, you know, juvenile delinquents say, what the, you know, <laughs> is this all, you know. <laughs> but they come back mm. just from this simple, simple little experiment experience there's always someone who cries when they report out there's always some amazed there's a silence there's a transformation and when we talk about that transformation you know people say well you know, it didn't really actually talk to me talk to me you know like a, i'm thinking of a 14 year old guy who was a you know drive-by shooter but uh you know I, and then he started to cry to say about how the tree had lost a relative or something like that and it's, it's such a powerful wow. thing. And then you say, well, you know, imagine living 24-7 like that. And, and you know, we can, even if we're downtown East St. Louis, you know, uh, and, it, you know, it, there's, there's cockroaches that can be teachers. There's weeds growing out of the, the, the brick sidewalk or the, or the concrete sidewalk. There's pigeons on the side of the road. There's maybe, if you're lucky, one star you'll see on, on an exceptional night. Um uh, you know, if we understand the worldview principles, if we understand what spirit energy is, you know, we're, you know, it's a vibration, it's, it's, a, it's a soul, it's a, you can call it a lot of things, but we all feel it when we see something beautiful and we get in and we, and we go out and we, and, and so here's children learning to do that, you know, at five and six years of age so that comes 
the uh, the mantra. You know, the the yoga traditions like Kundalini, they try to get that back with breathing exercises and internal things, and it's important. It reminds us how beautiful we are and how connected we are. Um, bringing those kinds of traditions with the indigenous, what we're calling, it doesn't belong to indigenous people. Sure. Place-based, place-based knowledge does. Mm. You have to speak the language in one place. That's sacred, and we've got to fight for its sovereignty. That's a, a but it's being lost. That's a great um, distinction to make for arrows, and I'd love to hear more about that. This idea of sort of, um, kind of, I guess, indigenous worldview or kinship worldviews, and like place-based and um, like that knowledge. Can you speak on that a bit more? Because I guess it might be a question that some people have. Like, you know, we're all somewhere from we're all from somewhere where there's um, traditional indigenous indigenous peoples that have been there forever, and they're different enough from each other and we've kind of homogenized them. So like, what do we mean by in that it's about, granularity? Yeah. It's about misappropriation problematics. I, I wrote a, an article for a, a peer reviewed article for university of British Columbia called the indigenization controversy for whom by whom. Okay. And we talk about this, but this distinction that Darcy and I make mm. is that there's place based wisdom and knowledge, a traditional knowledge that's been, you know, kind of accepted verbally by the scientific community, but not practically. And this is knowledge of the land through generations of one place. You walk across British Columbia, and if you're observant enough to know when the flora fauna change, you'll there know there's a new language. The language is based languages like the ones in Australia that were all about interaction with our relatives that are humans and non-humans. Whereas the dominant worldview languages, the Latin languages are, are non-based and they're about uh, society. They're about humans, actions and organizations, right? So that that's something that Darsh and I are not expert in. Mm. And, and, and so, uh, of course, you know, my expert is a guy that carries a slideshow more than 20 miles. That used to be an old saying I had. But, uh, but what we're saying is, for to my brothers and sisters who say, you shouldn't be teaching this stuff to non-Indians. I said, wait a minute. No one owns the worldview. People indigenous to the planet own it because that's how the planet operates. It's a nature world. And we, the, the people who happen to be indigenous are the ones that happen to continue to hold on to mm. that against all mm. that. In terms of what we got to do in our activism in our letters to Congress and getting out there at Standing Rock, we've got to fight for the place-based continuation of language, the place-based continuation of knowledge. And, 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 and all we can then is be, we can be helpers in that, in that regard or, or uh, you know, um, co-conspirators in that regard. We have to bow to those in that place. So worldview is something that belongs to all of us. And Fool's Crow said, those who feel that we cannot share that medicine do not know the medicine. And, there, and I appreciate my brothers and sisters who have that position because everything compromised, even getting sage is now a commercialized process, yeah. right? I totally get that, but I'm taken aside with other brothers and sisters of mine, like the, the famous fool's quote who said that. Mm, that's, yeah. I mean, I guess I can, yeah, like you, I guess I can understand um, the fear of it being appropriated, commercialized, and alienated 
from its original spirit, I suppose. And as still, still a risk. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. You're you're proposing to do something like that, knowing that that is a risk, but knowing that it is also a risk that might need to be taken. I guess is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying it's a risk that far, far is overridden by the mm. what is happening to our world because of the domino yeah. world and the loss of well, our this worldview. Interesting. And I guess, you know, because we were just speaking about like place-based wisdom, could you talk to this idea of heart wisdom that seems pretty central to the the, the kinship worldview and the book itself? Uh, you know, what do you mean when you say heart wisdom? Is that something we all have? Well, it must be developed. It's uh, what most primary or uh, the major religions and philosophies of the world say is the key to being a human being is to be heart-minded and uh, they warn you about intellect about thinking too much because you start to think that you're a thinker then uh and you uh you kind of end up in the reasoning you know and and imagining your and disconnected you're disconnected when you're in your reasoning mind mm. Uh, but heart-mindedness is about connection. It's about being aware. It's a spiritual uh, positioning, I suppose, of connection to the web of life all around you. Everything you do is affecting the web of life, and everything's alive around you. Are you respecting it? Are you honoring it? Are you uh, practicing ceremony of, of gratitude towards all these things that give us life, the sun, the air, <laughs> the water, right, and honoring as uh, givers of, of life, essentially, of spiritual um, well-being. So it's more than the material, too, right? It's uh, having an awareness of things beyond what you can see and touch. Mm. I'm just sitting with that because I guess um, I'm just trying to put my, myself in the, a skeptical person's point of view, I guess because... Everything that we're talking about is like, it is so beautiful, like genuinely, it's just so affirming and so, but also quite tragic at the same time because of where, where we feel like we are currently as a, as a collective sort of species, like, you know, as people on this earth. Um, but I can imagine someone who's in a really skeptical mind, you know, in, and I say this as a person, I'm not talking about skeptics in bad faith, but skeptics in good faith that might cling to the way of life that they've known because, yeah, I mean, there might be an idea that um, technology advances the way it does in order to make things better for people or whatever it is, or like competition is the way to sort of survive. And, you know, if everyone was looking after themselves, then, you know, maybe we could look after each other better. I don't know what the sort of the, the line could be, but I'm just trying to think about from a skeptic's point of view. And I guess maybe my question there is how, like, what would you, if you could tell a skeptical person that's open to new information, like one thing about understanding kinship worldview, what would it be? Well, what I would just ask is, is your ideas about technology, are your ideas about religion, are your ideas about corporatism, are your ideas ever that you're saying that that you want to hold on to, how are they working in the world? How are they and let's just sit down and, and, and look at that for a moment. And, uh, and in what ways, and, and 
I look at what's called the cat fawn connection, which was my vision. Mm. Yes. And what fear, authority, words, and nature, just four of the 40 precepts that we talk about. In, in what ways does the domino approach, the domino worldview that you've been raised with, in what ways is it dealing with the fear? In what way is authority guiding your actions in this? In what words are you using? Are they completely honest to the best ability? And if you use nature as a teacher. And once people look at that, well, it's something my dad told me. It's something that happened to me in a, in a, in a, in a, in a crisis. Uh, you know, and the authority for it came from this. And the, the fear is this. And the words mm -hmm. I are, are this. Um, and words are hypnotic. You know, uh, Kipling said that they're, they're mankind's most dangerous drug, but that would not be what an indigenous person would, would characterize them as. Um, mm. And nature is obviously, as we talked earlier, the only possible teacher for balance. And so mm. if we look, then I would say, would you be willing to do, to learn some self-hypnosis so that you can now see with the cognitive agreements that we have about like well, that I can see where I, that, that authority came from this time when I was five and it doesn't because we cannot the skeptics hold on to the skepticism because they they are not able to change because it is automatic in their behaviors mm. it's actualized indigenous people always knew this problematic ceremony is a form of of, of, of hypnosis. You go in with an intention, you lower your brainwave frequency, you imagine the being generous, you imagine being a, being able to craft the basket so it holds water or whatever it is, right? Mm. Um, without knowing the neuroscience of it, right? And yet, so this, we have relegated that. We've, we've, we've bastardized it. It's Hollywoodized. Uh, all the, the, the Abrahamic religions say something against it. Uh, it's of the devil. Uh, and yet, who uses it? You know, the, the Donald Trumps of the world, the, the dictators that have, a, have control of an audience. Uh, during times of fear, all creatures become hypersuggestible to the communication of a perceived trusted authority figure if you're in a dominant worldview. Mm. Um, it, you sit down with somebody and they read this book and they, they get these things and they get four, 28 of the, of the 40 and they get a dialogue about how they can really apply to practical life and how to begin to use cat font and to and others uh, other ways of processing this to go out and 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 and, and make the transformation um mm. so it's very very simple and very 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 difficult right yeah you know four hours actually because you were just speaking about hypnosis and the way it's kind of been framed like in in particularly like i guess my context is like you know i've been raised greek orthodox it's my background i'm not practicing but culturally it is who i am and it's just something that's part of me i guess and i guess the analogous concept that came to mind when i thought about that was you know again hypnosis has this concept like if we take away the sensationalized aspects of it um i feel like the notion in in at least christianity is this idea of charisma and like like uh like a well you know that charismatic energy that we talk about um and how you know leaders that you've mentioned utilize charisma however like it's this undefinable hypnotic kind of trait that people are drawn to 
um, in order to um, get people to rally to behind them to their cause. And but it's it, it seems like a reframing of a very similar kind of phenomenon that you're talking about there. This automatic, um, holistic, very like energy drawing kind of um, or attention drawing kind of energy that emanates from someone or that someone can learn to emanate, I guess, too. So, but it almost sounds like the way you're talking about it kind of seeks to reverse that process in some ways where we can kind of apply it to ourselves or use it as a way to reframe our internal worlds or and whatnot. Is that, have I understood that correctly? I think your last sentence, last sentence was the closest reframing, reframing the, the, uh, the, the belief that you have. What that, mm. So at first it requires what we call metacognition, you know, thinking about why do I have this? Why do I get mad when you say this? Why I do this better? Why can't I, whatever, you know, uh, wh uh, that's just, that's just going into the worldviews and, and looking at, at them, right. And source of it and saying, wow, I, I could see how I'm in the side of it. So now, okay, now what? All right. Well, now self-hypnosis is very, very easy. I mean, nobody wants to, you make $300 an hour doing it to somebody. Mm, in fact, all hypnosis ultimately is self-hypnosis, and uh, and it's it's in the medical literature. It's for real. It, it changes the brain synapses, etc. But it and we're in all the all, in and out of trance all the time, and uh, natural. And that's why it was always understood. Trance-based healing was always, you know, there was a book written in the 1800s uh, called the uh, the uh, the fake shaman because somebody's. Mm had some worms in his hand before he went in and he pulled worms out of somebody's stomach. Well, the patient knew that, the, you know, it was a metaphorical way to get the vision, you know, and, and it was, you know, right. Right. But, um, so there's these things that we have in our colonialization with the continual colonizing, the oppressing for the favor of the few that is, has guided us, and then we've got enough diversions, you know, enough diversions to keep us from getting back to our fundamental source, and that is kinship worldview. And to restore is the answer to the question that the reporter asked the press secretary today. Wonderful. I uh, recently published a paper uh, called The Missing Mind uh, in that talks about what we've lost over the millennia of civilization and that one of one of those things is uh, polysemy or polyphony this uh, way of seeing things in multiple way, uh, aspects and not uh, categorizing them into one thing only you know identity and and being so rigid about it that's very left brain stuff uh, Research of left versus right brain when you numb one side or the other, they act quite differently. Uh, and so we've gotten caught up in this. And uh, there's a book called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, a very fat book with half of it being all the research on left and right hemisphere stuff, and the second half being how the left brain has taken over the Western world and right. is destroying everything, <laughs> essentially, because the left brain thinks it knows everything. And right. even though that's the intellect, the danger that I mentioned earlier that the major religions have warned about. And now we're caught up in it. Uh, and, um, so I, uh, 
I'm losing my train of thought here. But um, that's one of the things we lost is the polysim, the ability to shift in and out of being this way or that way. And we used to, now we just stay with univocity, a one single-mindedness. And that's honored by philosophers, right? To be single-minded is a good thing. Right. No, what is it? Mm. Because you lost your ability to take the perspective of the beaver, of the bear, of the wolf, of the tree, and shift in and out of perspectives and of being, you know, a shapeshifter. That's, you know, that's part of our spiritual heritage too. So what we've done is we've undermined right hemisphere development, right brain development in, in childhood, because the nest supports its development. And what we do when you stress out a baby, you're, you're undermining its development because it's rapidly developing in early life. Hmm. And so you get very anxious too, because it's part of the self-regulation system. So we have epidemics now of anxiety and depression and all because of what we've done to young children. Mm. And we think it's normal for people to be selfish and aggressive. No, it isn't. Mm. <laughs> but mm. basically shifted so much, we don't, don't remember who we are. Well, you know, the mm. Lak Lakota really have, have taught me that uh, the Washishu, the dominant takers of the fat, the, the, the dominant worldview, um, is our master's in, uh, in left hemispheric uh, endeavors. And that the Lakota are masters of right hemispheric endeavors. And they see that the, the two coming together, which is what we do in our non-binary, binary analysis. Mm. Yes. The preface of it, as you see, it explains that. Allow us for this to happen uh, in, in this and, you know, I had a doctoral student who took this further and found, I'll be really brief, found when people were in a place of looking at nature scenes while in an MRI machine hooked up, that the activity in both hemispheres stopped and the corpus callosum lit up like the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. All the neurosciences that were there were like, wow, this is me. And her and I just looked at each other because that was her her theory. She was a she did Svara yoga, nostril breathing yoga, alternative brain, you know, lateralization. Right. And 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 so you know you know this this idea of of us finding this place uh, for the left and right hemisphere, yeah. We haven't even begun to look at it, this indigenous worldview in, in those in those in those terms as a way to, mm -hmm. to do exactly what we're doing in, in the kinship uh, worldview book. Amazing. Well, look on that note. I guess you know. Thank you for such a, a like a thought provoking. Really, just it's a it's a discussion I've had unlike any other. I think, and you know, I think you know, my mission with the book, considering there's, you know, so many precepts is to read one a week and just really kind of sit with it. Like, I think it's a good way to just break it down and just learn something new each week. I guess for some of us that might be, who, who let's say the book is resonant with people or um, for those that are, feel that they're at their own sort of precipice and want to enact changes or fit like, you know, take a step in this direction towards a kinship worldview, but feel that they're in circumstances that make that quite difficult, for example. Do you have any advice for people in that situation? Yeah, that's 
play. Play with children, play outside, be nature connected, uh, take every opportunity, watch the clouds, you know, the sun on your skin. Uh, this gets you back. Earth, lie on the earth and earth, yourself. Uh, sun, all that will get your body kind of back on the earth. And playing with others is the way to grow the right hemisphere and integrate the brain. We want integrated brains, not one side or the other, right? We want them to work in uh, concert, but fully. And so I always uh, play with my students. We learn folk song games and we learn them so we can go teach them to kindergartners. And then they explode with energy and the undergraduate students, the college students are going, wow, they're really into it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then yeah, right. they get into it. And that's how you become a full human being, the flexibility, the interaction. You have to touch people and notice what they're doing and look them in the eye and you grow the things that don't get grown a lot if you're sitting in front of the screen, right? And Or at a desk with a worksheet. Great. Play. I love that. Yeah. Four yeah. Hours. One of the precepts that we did not put in the book, I don't think. Oh, yes, we did. We surely did. Is humor. Uh, and the worldview, uh, the, the on the on the what we call our, the kinship side, uh, is humor is a part of living a healthy life, versus the one that's in the dominant is humor is usually about entertainment. Uh, our, so, but uh, so yeah, very interesting actually. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. I love that that the advice really for such complex, but simple, simple, deceptively simple deceptively complex thing that we're talking about here comes down to play and humor things that are so that have such specific functions i guess in in society right now and even like hearing comedians and comic writers talk about humor and the way that's it's difficult to be funny anymore and all this sort of stuff like i'm just kind of like oh that's a really interesting sort of take on it like i think I like to adopt a bit of an absurdist worldview in my own personal life because things are funny like things are like chaos is kind of funny. Things are absurd. If you kind of make that practice of seeing things in different ways, you can find the humor in a lot of things. And it, you know, it kind of, it deepens that experience of life too. So I, I love that advice, actually. It's, it's a good way to reconnect with, I guess, to reintegrate with ourselves, I suppose, is what you're saying. So well, every, really every, lovely. every indigenous story has a trickster, right? And the trickster yeah, shows yeah. How ridiculous that that we are! But I think if if the if someone goes through the book and and especially we have an audio book coming out that then you can mm, listen great. to the to the speeches. But um, uh, use the worldview chart. We've added the, the all um, is the chart. Just put it up on the wall and uh, just start. To just use it every day and see how how hard is it to begin to do these things. I, I just close with this. I, I did a group of clinical psychologists who were very skeptical right from the get go. Somebody said, you know, I'm on, I'm, I already, I'm not on this, this dominant worldview side. I, you know, I, I, I'm already on it. So is our, as our school and all this kind of stuff. And her colleague fought and said, you know, and, and, and everything. But about an hour and a half into the workshop, she came back and she said, oh my God, I get it. Hmm. May be in my heart that that people have a high respect for women or should. Uh, it may be in my heart that there is spirit and energy in, in a tree. But what you're saying is 
our worldview is guiding us in a different direction in everything from economics to education to our movies. And I wanted to kind of go, duh, well, of course, it's about reality, you know, but I, I, I didn't. And I thought, okay, you know, if, you know, so maybe that's a good place to close. Great. Well, I, look, thank you so much, both of you, for um, such a rich discussion that I'll be thinking about for weeks, I think. Um, I guess just as a, as a closing question, where can people find you and more of the information, uh, like more of more of your work? Um, any details about the book you'd like to share? The floor is yours. Well, the uh, some of this information and the chart is available at kindredmedia.org. Okay. Yep. We'll put that <clears> in <throat> notes. Yes. And uh, evolvenest.org is all about early childhood and its effects on adults and uh, our capacities. And uh, the book, of course, um, and fourarrowsbooks.com, right? Uh, for his books, uh, many books. And if you just Google me, you'll find stuff too. So. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Just Google four arrow worldview. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you all so much for your time. Um, have a really lovely evening. Um, yeah, we'll leave it there. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Undesign, a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available. 